Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. Today's date is March 16, 2023, and this is S4A live stream number 88. We usually just do these on Wednesdays right now, one stream per week, but I had some extra time and we had some follow-up stuff that I felt like flowed out of yesterday's stream, so this stream probably won't be as long as uh, the streams have been, uh, you know, recently, but um, yeah, anyway... Livestream 88, here we are. So we've got uh, 30 people in the chat. And what I plan to talk about today, and it always does need to be couched in terms of what the plan is because sometimes things come up. That is kind of the story of running S4A. I often plan content and then the planned content oftentimes gets pushed back. We were talking about this a little bit in the stream yesterday. Planned content will get pushed back by emerging current events that require discussion and you know we don't do this stream every day so it's not like I just have time um, on a daily basis you have to pick and choose you have to prioritize what's gonna get covered um, and things like that let's just say I'm kind of at capacity right now as far as how much time I can spend on this of course thanks to the patrons and we might as well Go ahead and uh, do uh, patron credits right now. Patreon.com slash socialism for all. I would be making content regardless of the level of financial support. In fact, the first two years of this, um, it was really, you know, pretty small. We, I mean, I appreciate the support of people who have been in there. Uh, you know, really, I think actually our first three-year patron is coming up next month. The people whose names are in green have been going for two years. One year on the people in yellow, less than a year for the people who are in white. Um, but yeah, we're going to have our first blue name, I think, in April 2023. So there have been people who have been supporting. Um, it only got really significant last year. And uh, that's great. I mean, it, it has allowed me to kind of shift things around with the support. I only really started doing the um, Patreon thing because it was something people do. And I was like, well, I'm going to do this reading anyway. And I have things to vent, you know, political thoughts to vent anyway. I'll just put it out and see. And I've always had kind of um, mixed feelings about it. But now that the channel is up over 10,000, we're at 13.3 thousand subscribers now with over 500 new people coming in every month. Um, it's, you know, taken on a life of its own. This support is really important for me to be able to continue... Um, you know, doing the kind of things that people expect out of a channel like this. And to be fair, like, there is a kind of uh, somewhat antagonistic push-pull between what I want to do and what the sometimes weirdly demanding audience wants. Um, I just find that so strange. This is not an entertainment channel. This is an education channel that is supposed to be a direct um, adjunct to your real-world activism and organization and things like that. We're not just here to, um, you know, stroke our beards or like, you know, just sort of do armchair shit. This is supposed to support the real world struggle. And sometimes people treat it like a fandom and that's just fucking weird. And if you do that, you need to ground yourself in some real world struggle like yesterday. Um, you know, that said, I try to do everything that I can do on the channel. Like we recently got things onto Spotify. And last year I did SoundCloud, so there's like 500 tracks almost, I think it's 470-something, tracks up on SoundCloud. 
that took hours and hours and hours to migrate the YouTube content over. So, you know, I don't like getting into things where people are like, put everything on Spotify. Yeah, I'll just, you know, pull like a spare week out of my ass and like migrate over. Do you know how many videos are on the, the S4A YouTube? It's hundreds. It's like almost 700 videos. The amount of time to migrate all that content over to Anchor and Spotify. We're also on the Internet Archive now, and I submitted the RSS feed to a bunch of like podcast um, you know, whatever the fuck they call them, um, things that spread your podcast further, podcast directories or something like that. Um, so yeah, when people step in with the sort of production advice, believe me, I probably already thought of it. If I haven't done it yet, it's probably just cause I don't have time. So you really want to see something more like that, become a patron. Uh, it's the only way I can really take time away from other things to focus on this. And, um, you know, when people get sort of demanding about, do this with the channel, do that with the channel. Hey, it's not like I haven't thought about it, and it's not like I don't want to see the channel grow. The channel has, in fact, been growing, you know, it's been wildly successful, um, I think, that it's over 13,000 subscribers now, and continues to grow. It's probably I just don't have the time, and so you asking me about it is probably just going to irritate me more than anything else, especially if you're not a patron or somebody that I'm kind of already you know, have a back and forth with, you're just a random um, viewer sort of bugging me to like, do more of what you like. Well, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. I'm somebody who wanted to do more reading and we're doing the reading and we're doing, now we're doing live streams. That was a new thing last year. But you know, there's steps to this thing. I really need people to respect that. So you got to keep in mind what you think is good for this channel may not be what I think is good for this channel. And what I think is good for this channel is based on my needs as the person running it. And also somebody who is trying to keep quality high. I'm not out to be one of these random podcast grifters. We're trying to do actual education work that is tied into people joining organizations and engaging in real world struggle. Not again, some kind of just social media circle jerk. Not trying to do that. So you know, we've been going for three years and we want to just make sure that the channel continues to grow at a pace that is appropriate to the amount of support it's getting, etc., etc. So hopefully that makes sense. If you respect what we're doing here, you will respect that. Even if you don't fully understand it yet, just trust me. Um, you know, I don't work well when, um, you know, I start getting overworked. So if you want to see the channel <laughs> go smoothly, which I do too. I like doing this. I think it's important for there to be outlets doing broad-based agitation and education, and we're not the only one doing it. But it is important to, um, you know, this is not a commercial enterprise. We don't even run ads, let alone sponsorships on the channel. We're doing, you know, I'm another commenter that just happened to sprout a YouTube channel out of my head. I was posting memes, I was posting comments, several years ago and then I was like hey what if we also started a channel started reading the theory behind it and so that's where all this came out of I'm a commenter I'm an activist just like you and I'm just I also happen to start doing this on the side anyway that's just a little bit of orientation there now speaking of um, the the new playlist on the channel and things like that um, that's what's new on the channel today, so check that out. But also, um, we had a couple of questions come in just since the, 
the last stream that I wanted to say. So this was um, a message somebody sent in. They said, hey, I had a disagreement with the post you made the other day about Brian Becker. And um, so Brian Becker is a co-founder of PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation. And um, he's also the national director of the Answer Coalition, which is holding a big peace rally, anti-war rally this Saturday, March 18. The main rally is going to be in Washington, D.C., but there are also going to be other mini rallies around the U.S. So go check out Answer's website. Answer stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. <clears throat> it's a left um, effort that started after 9-11 and was opposing U.S. invasions of various countries. Um, check out Answer's website and check your local left organizations, if they're having a rally in your area, there are going to be some, not just in Washington, D.C. Um, but anyway, Brian Becker, to me, uh, seemed like they were bordering on putting out some sort of like Russia good stuff in their, quote, anti-war messaging. And, you know, as we were discussing in yesterday's live stream and the on the slogan peace in Ukraine clip that I just posted from yesterday's live stream, live stream 87, um, you know, the, our task as socialists is to be advocates for an end to bourgeois aggression without endorsing any side of the bourgeois aggression. So we want de-escalation and peace. Um, we want to stop the slaughter of unorganized working people. And obviously as socialists, we're also trying to push for organization towards an eventual uh, socialist revolution. However, outside of a revolutionary moment, you want a de-escalation of bourgeois war, for sure, as well as bourgeois exploitation. Like, there's a class struggle on, we want to win it, and when there is bourgeois war, that actually makes conditions for class struggle worse. What we want, and this goes back to Lenin, is increased civil liberties and, you know, free speech and the ability to wage class war under the best conditions that we can. Bourgeois war takes us in the exact opposite direction because they crack down on free speech. Actually, if you go to the S4A Twitter feed at Socialism S4A and look back a little bit, I was retweeting some stuff from Comrade Shpakova, uh, who works with Politsterm, I understand, and uh, she was doing some research on uh, Russia just passed a law that basically says if you criticize people involved with the invasion of Ukraine or the, quote, special military operation, as they call it, um, you can get 15 years jail time. So that's not conducive to waging class struggle at all. Um, so the capitalists going to war makes them vulnerable. So they have to tighten the reins and they have to crack down on civil liberties like we've saw this in the U.S. with the Patriot Act and stuff like that. Anyway, um, so I think, you know, I saw some things that were definitely muddy coming out of that. And, you know, as the director of the Answer Coalition leading this peace in Ukraine rally, I think that that bears some criticism. So anyway, this person says, I incorrectly assumed that you were opposing the March 18 Answer rally on the same grounds as you had opposed the Rage Against the War Machine rally, which happened last month. That was the Libertarian Party. Libertarians are fascists. They want uh, liberty for capital. This is basically a slogan of bourgeois revolution which is now over two centuries out of date in the United States. And um, it's purely reactionary. Libertarians are sadly the third largest political party in the U.S. And there's a lot of people that think it's some sort of um, ideology of liberation. However, 
you know, the class composition of the U.S. has dramatically changed since 1776. Now we're primarily a country of proletarians. And yet, pro, you know, this is a capitalist government with um, class interests that directly oppose the interests of the overwhelming majority of the proletarian, you know, composed population. So, um, yeah, anyway, Rage Against the War Machine wound up being a right wing freak show. And no, I've never opposed the answer rally. In fact, I've been endorsing it and promoting it. However, that's not to say that there isn't going to be some criticism in there. Now, we'll see what actually gets said at the rally. I do want to do um, kind of a post game on that and just break down, does the left, U.S. left, need to tinker with um, our anti-war messaging? We'll see what actually gets said. You know, so support... Um, with criticism is not the same as opposition. Just want to be clear about that. Uh, and, you know, the kind of organizations that were endorsing and turning out for Rage Against the War Machine were right-wing organizations that are anti-socialist um, and, I mean, in a very, very direct way. Uh, fascists and crypto-fascists were among that entire formation. Whereas if you look at the organizations that have endorsed the Answer Rally... Um, it's left-wing pretty much straight through. And again, the U.S. left could stand some improvement, but, it, you know, there's a difference between the left and the right. Anyway, uh, but I listened to your stream for the first time yesterday, and I learned that that's not the case, so just wanted to say thank you for doing that stream and for voicing support for the rally. It's easy to feel cornered with an anti-war position, and so many people I used to respect have turned pro-war or pro-Russia so yeah, I mean, there's people going pro-USA, um, and there's people going pro-Russia. Uh, both are incorrect positions in the last year. Thanks for not being one of them. Yeah, I mean, I've been getting shit for this from literally day one, but, you know, here we are a year later, um, and, you know, we still have the same position. It is correct, and we're going to continue to voice it and explain it. So anyway, I appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, it can be hard to have your position clearly understood. And that's one of the things about when there is a war that breaks out, there is a frenzy. Truth gets buried. People get sort of um, hysterically, you know, jingoistic about one side or the other. And they get really swept up in that and stop thinking. And then they stop listening and things break down. It's not good. I mean, war for sure, is, um, you know, a continuation of business and politics by other means. But, you know, definitely also a breakdown of communication. Anyway, it is still incumbent on communists to just keep, you know, as patiently and calmly as we can, continuing to explain our position. Anyway, I had another comment come in, which um, somebody asked on the video, would you support this war, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, if Russia were still socialist, and I said, well, you know, I sort of reject the premise because if the USSR still existed, then Ukraine would not be in the situation that it's in, which is kind of the point. Um, Ukraine's for the last 30 years has been in a tug of war between Europe leaning forces in the north and west, about two thirds of Ukraine tends to lean more towards Europe culturally, politically you know, linguistically, like in, in all kinds of ways. And then the um, eastern and southern, roughly third of Ukraine, has tended to lean more towards 
the Russian sphere of influence. But when it was the USSR, it was in a stable economic formation until, again, um, the uh, you know revision under Gorbachev, which basically reinstated capitalism, led to the political crack-up of the USSR within just a few years, late 80s, early 90s. And then um, once, you know, because uh, the economy went through the political situation in the USSR, um, everything just fell apart. And so all those countries were in turmoil f throughout the 90s, which comes into the next part of the, the their follow-up question. They said... Um, if the USSR still existed, it could be much worse. What? No. I mean, Russia wouldn't be invading the Ukraine. That makes no sense. So then they, they explain this reasoning by saying, just scale up the Chechen war. What happened in Kiev is nothing compared to what happened in Grozny. Okay, but the Chechen wars were in the 90s after the USSR ceased to exist. So I don't think that this makes sense. Again, there was turmoil and chaos in the former USSR countries throughout the 90s. You know, in, in uh, the late 90s, Putin came in in Russia and started to kind of restabilize things on a capitalist basis, again, with some backing from the US and other large capitalist countries. Um, but yeah, you're like, just scale up the Chechen war. Well, again, that wouldn't have happened either. So I, I don't really get it. But anyway, um, sometimes I feel like these are the only comments I get are things that just make no fucking sense. So it's nice to do these streams because I feel like most of the people who turn out for the streams and other people who I'm in closer contact with um, running this channel are much more intelligent. So anyway, all right, that's a little bit of just housekeeping of what's new on the channel. So I think I never actually ran down the plan on what we're going to talk about today. Um, gonna follow up with the banking collapse stuff. I have a number of short articles about the Silicon Valley banks, Signature Bank, also Credit Suisse um, <clears throat> is getting sued and there's sort of a lot of back and forth between the US financial community, um, you know, capitalist parasite exploiters and the European capitalists arguing over, you know, how they're doing this thing. I said yesterday, I think it's pretty clear that the U.S. is taking quasi-bailout moves because they don't want the financial sinkhole that arguably started with FTX and um, opened up underneath Silicon Valley Bank. They don't want it to spread. They don't want the banking contagion where things start dominoing. They don't want that. Uh, but they're getting criticism over it, and it's like, I don't know. It, it seems to me that the choice, and I, and I talked a lot yesterday about stability. Capitalism does not offer stability. It is a very unstable system. Marx and Engels noted this 175 years ago. It has a boom and bust cycle baked into it, the crisis of overproduction, etc. This is just a natural feature of capitalism. So it's an unstable system. And yeah, capitalists their fortunes rise and fall with that instability. So it's bad for some of them, although some of them always gain in those uh, scenarios anyway, and capital gets more consolidated over time. But it's also bad for us propertyless people, proletarians who you know have to work for a living or beg for a living or whatever we do to get enough uh, money to go buy uh, the commodified essentials of life that we need to pick up to live, like food, shelter, medicine, 
and, uh, and so on. Maybe some education to actually understand the world around you and things like that. Um, it's bad for us. So socialism offers a planned economy, gets away from market anarchy, produces for use and for human need, not for speculative profit and, and so on. So we want socialism. It is the promise of stability, um, uh, an economy not run for profit, not run for capital, but is run by and for workers to meet human need. And um, <clears throat> the capitalists seem to want it both ways now in the U.S. with these bailouts. They want the stability of a system that is not capitalism while keeping you know, private ownership and, and capitalistic uh, practices. And you really can't have both forever. And the system is, I think, going to end up melting down in a major way. But that's where these bailouts are coming from. They're trying to keep things stable. Um, you know, I don't know if it's like Keynesianism squared, but uh, it, it is a relatively new approach that they're attempting since 2008. Where it goes, nobody quite knows yet. It's unprecedented in history. Um, but anyway, we're going to get into some more details about what's going on with that. I had uh, one other article about long COVID. Yesterday was Long COVID Awareness Day, and we're going to just read a quick thing about that just to follow up. Finally, we're going to get to that second article about capitalism in China. Uh, whatever you think about China being on the right track or not, it's incontestable that they are allowing a lot of capitalism. And we're going to take another look. We looked at um, a critical view of that <clears throat> from the Greek Communist Party, the KKE, uh, yesterday, we are going to uh, read another one from Rotefront, a uh, Russian uh, socialist um, outfit. We'll talk a little bit more about Rotefront had a split last year, which took it in a bad direction, but this was written before that. Anyway, we'll look at that. So that's what's on the agenda for today. Um, let's go into the chat real quick first. There are fewer people. It's always the second stream in the week. There's a little bit less chat because we you know, blew off all the steam um, during the first one usually. But let's see what is going on in the chat. Does anyone have experience engaging with pissed off workers hanging out outside their job site, particularly if they already seem pissed off and agitated? Found myself in this situation a few times, but I was wondering if anyone had experience with this kind of engagement. Yeah, go and read the, um, the organizing manuals that I posted on the channel because I put in a lot of thoughts about that kind of thing. <clears throat> um, even when you have people who are dissatisfied with their work situation, um, disgruntlement and desire to actually take the risk of organizing are two completely different things. And, you know, I've been in workplaces before where people would literally just nonstop complain about the situation. But when, you know, um, carefully and tactfully approached about would you consider like you know maybe uh you know meeting up to like talk more about how we can improve this just across the board no they just wanted to complain so there's a difference between people uh, wanting to complain and wanting to get active sometimes there's overlap but it's sometimes the quieter ones who actually are more likely to organize it just depends um Anyway, that's a pretty broad question, and that's about the best, best that I can answer it with the information uh, coming up. So, 
Let's see. I will say that one text that all leftists need to read is Lenin's Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, because it is very apparent that many people have not read it, and it is very prescient right now. Like, even with the whole bank failures, etc., Lenin goes over stuff like that in Chapter 2 of the book. Yeah. Um, we're going to be doing that. It's at the end of the Basic Marxism-Leninism Study Guide. But, yeah, by all means, people should skip ahead, go and read it, for sure. Um, we'll be getting up to it as soon as we can on the channel. I just... I vowed to do that playlist in order, and come hell or high water, I'm sticking to that. Everything else, fine, I'll do it out of order. That one, I'm just doing in order. Pro-war people don't know shit. I saw one try to claim that Putin is trying to reunite the USSR. Yeah, they played the USSR nostalgia um, when it's useful for Russian capitalism. So, you know, that's what they do. Don't be gullible enough to fall for it, you know? That's that's our thing. And when you see people falling for it, challenge them on it. You, you don't have to be an asshole about it, but do challenge them. You know, ask them questions that, you know, that challenge the evidence, uh, the, the reasoning and the evidence behind that conclusion. Yeah, so the thing about, <laughs> like... The Chechen War happened after the USSR. Yeah, so again, that's the kind of comment you get sometimes. Um, Yeltsin specifically started attacks on Grozny just to ensure political things could happen. Yeah, I mean, so de-Sovietization, um, as we've covered a bit um, in past videos, there's an enormous amount of destabilization that has to happen to sort of pave the way for the new counter-revolutionary capitalist order. Silicon Valley Bank literally lobbied Congress to get rid of the regulations that would have had them under more scrutiny just so that they could give out more risky loans. Yeah, we're going to cover that today. That's in one of the articles. This is being recorded, yeah. <laughs> you made me double check. <laughs> yes, this is being recorded. It's like, I don't know, did, is it not being recorded? The Swiss bank has no relation to the Swiss, Swiss banks, which have untaxable hoarded wealth of capitalists. I hear Swiss bank as an, synonymous with tax avoidance. Yeah, that's like kind of before the Cayman Islands, like tax haven thing. Um, it was like the neutral Swiss banks um, in the middle of Europe, uh, sort of protecting all the capitalist money while they uh, sent workers to kill each other in the world wars. It's called Neo-Keynesian Economics that has Paul Krugman and friends, yeah. Personally, I feel my analysis has improved since I began listening to S4A. Uh, my analysis has also improved since doing this channel. It's a project. It's a challenge to study and get educated. I expect that my analysis will continue to improve through, you know, 2030 um, doing this channel. I mean, I don't think that, like, the whole idea was to learn more, and that's going to impact your politics. So, yeah, leave space for people... Um, to change their politics and, and for people to improve their politics, it's going to happen. Um, you know, it, it's incumbent on people not to go blathering a lot of nonsense and, uh, you know, also to do as much education as we can so that when people start out, they're at a somewhat 
you know, more informed level. When I started um, getting political, like in the 2000s, there was just not really much socialist stuff to engage with at all. So I was kind of like stumbling around in the dark for a long time. And it wasn't really until after 2008 and into the 2010s that, um, you know, you saw more of that resurgence of discussion about capitalism per se and therefore socialism. And so, yeah, people's politics, you know, can change. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole point of learning this stuff. I need to get educated on Keynesian economics. I hear that term often and I'm not really that familiar. So it's basically, um, uh, you know, back when capitalism was new, it was largely unregulated. And so this is classical liberalism, you know, uh, what libertarians want to go back to. That's why it's called neoliberalism now. Uh, but what was in the middle was social democracy, kind of this regulated capitalism that had more um, manipulation, guidance, like it was still capitalism, but there were more regulations and there was more policy um, about what capitalists could and couldn't do. That was aimed at keeping the, um, the rises and the, the, um, the ups and the downs of capitalism more contained you know, less sort of crazy. And so when capitalism went off the rails, which it would, it wouldn't go as far off the rails. There would be a quicker recovery time. So anyway, that's sort of a, a brief synopsis. But since the late 70s, there's been a push to undo um, a lot of those uh, kind of constraints. So anyway, do look it up because I'm giving like a very, very cursory overview here. But, um, yeah, Keynesian economics was sort of like the, uh, you, you know, poster child for we need to, like, tighten up this capitalism and regulate it, not just have, you know, the complete laissez-faire free market um, stuff. It was a desire for more stability with an unstable system without getting rid of that unstable system. Bad empanada is too immature. I understand it's an act, but it's not healthy or productive. I don't know if it's an act or not, but I agree it's not healthy or productive. I mean, there's some reasonable political points in there, but it's getting drowned out by the sort of toxicity and, and ego, you know, just anyway. This is what happens when someone sees the impotency of the first world left, but has no exposure to the actual Marxist theory about why that is, and so just gives up on it. This is not principled third worldism. Um, yeah, I guess the main point I would make, there's still things we can do with the first, you know, United States left. Um, first of all, understand the history of the U.S. left. See where the strong points have been and where the weak points have been. That would, and try to build, you know, off of the strong points and recreate some of the strong points and, um, you know, avoid the fa more failed strategies, um, definitely. There's things you can do and there's people here who need it. And to the effect, to the extent that we can have any impact on the U.S. foreign policy, which right now is minimal, but to the extent that we can build that influence, we need to try. It is just, um, you know, I, I get it. I've had times, uh, not just while doing this channel, but prior to doing this channel, where it's just like, what's the point, you know, and, and feeling that sort of hopelessness and despair. But we have to remember um, that 
that just means we're burning out. We need to take a step back, reorient to some revolutionary optimism. And then this happened to me not that long ago. So, I mean, yeah, you can't let it, especially when a lot of people are listening to you, the idea, and Banabanada has a large audience, you know, you, you can't let that sort of personal failure um, taint your educational work, if you're taking it seriously, at least. So, you know, it's like showing up to class and just watching your teacher have a mental breakdown. Like, it's not conducive to um, what you're there to do. Let's see. I like stream stuff that is academic, uh, but we'll go over things like the People's Communes of China because I work with history and culture, but I know it's never going to be a big sell. Yeah, it's not necessarily the sexiest subject. You know, people want to pop in for like, somebody called somebody a, a boogerhead, you know, <laughs> like, um, and that's, I think, the challenge is how to make this interesting and relevant. I'm constantly trying to tie it in to current events and explain you know why if people just study they will have answers uh, much better answers a lot faster i doubt talking about the history of the spanish inquisition will make anyone an e-celeb yeah for sure I, a work trip had me driving off the beaten path in florida alabama and related areas and these people are obviously stockholmed prisoners of whatever industries are just ripping out resources and leaving a wasteland behind i honestly don't know what is the best way to do it is uh but but obviously no one is reaching out to them for nothing yeah we have to get there first the problem is the right wing you know people often want to point to well the right wing got there first because they're just better and they're doing the work and they're disciplined in a way that the u.s left isn't yeah and of course the billions of dollars of koch money both into above ground organizations like prager u and ben shapiro and shit like that it's not just, you know, Koch money. It's like everything um, from the far right. They have money. They're capitalists. They're trying to uphold the status quo. They have money. Uh, we don't. Yeah, I mean, so the right wing is getting there because they're funded in a way that we're not. So try internalizing that as like, I guess we're just not as good as the right wing. That's a major error people, people need to stop making. Uh, and this sort of, you know, abandon hope U.S. left. Well, if you don't like the way things are now, they're going to get even worse if we stop. Okay? That's just the way it is. So, anyway. Also, besides imperialism, Marxist socialists need to read The Right of Nations to Self-Determination. It's a handful, but really valuable in the approach on a matter that spits out uh, different, quote, schools of Marxism. We have that uh, up on the channel if people want to read it. Yeah. All right. Um... No, it's not the Koch brothers. That's what they want to say. Every other person I've ever met pronounces that word Koch, and that's what we're going to call them. That is their, that is an air that they're putting on. It's a pretense. Don't, uh, don't, don't play, play into it. Koch brothers. No, the fucking Koch brothers. Koch like crotch. Don't give it to them. Don't give it to them. All right. That said, let's get into the, uh, the banking articles. And what's first up? I got six of these. They're all short. SVBA. SVBA. Boom. What to know? This is from Forbes. This is like a bunch of data points. So let's get a bunch of data points. Forbes. What to know about Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, the biggest bank failure since 2008. This is from three days ago. Sorry, four days ago, the 13th. 
Um, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed uh, by Connor Murray. I was like to credit the author. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in spectacular fashion Friday, just days after it announced big losses, creating the biggest bank failure in the United States since the Great Recession. That'd be the 2008 global economic meltdown. And quickly sparking a government plan to protect depositors, I will add, even the ones that weren't actually supposed to be insured. Key facts. California-based Silicon Valley Bank was closed Friday morning by the state's financial regulator. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation announced becoming the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. The closure capped a few tumultuous days for S. SVB, I don't know why that's so hard to say, a lender to technology startups after it announced Wednesday that it had sold $21 billion in securities at a loss of $1.8 billion and would seek to raise $2.25 billion in capital. Parentheses, it sought to sell $1.25 billion in common stock and $500 million in convertible preferred shares, and it announced a deal with General Atlantic to sell another $500 million of common stock contingent on the other common stock offering closing. Okay, that's a lot of um, buying and selling right there. So it sold $21 billion in securities at a loss and then was seeking to raise capital to offset the loss. And then it was trying to sell a bunch of stock as well. Shares of the parent company, SVB Financial, were halted Friday morning after they fell 64% in pre-market trading. This was following a 60% dive the previous day on Thursday, as investors quickly sold shares. So basically on Thursday, it started tanking. It continued in the pre-market um, trading on Friday, and then they pulled the plug. Okay. Amid concerns about the bank's stability, some venture capital funds, including Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, advised portfolio companies to pull money out of SVB. SEO Greg Becker told the bank's clients to stay calm and that the bank has ample liquidity during a conference call Thursday. Okay. SVB, they, find me a situation where they were just like, we're fucked, abandon ship. They're always like, don't panic, everything is fine. As they like catch flame, you know, like just like burn to, burn to a pile of ash or just like, we're fine. SVB Financial was in talks to sell itself after attempts of raising capital failed. CNBC reported, though plans to find a buyer were abandoned. The FDIC created the National Bank of Santa Clara to protect insured depositors who will have access to their insured deposits. Remember, FDIC insurance covers up to 250000 in deposits. Anything beyond that, um, you got to get some other kind of protection. Uh, those depositors will have access to their insured deposits no later than Monday, March 13, the FDIC announced Friday. So they're really, really trying to make sure that there is not a liquidity crisis where companies can um, keep having access to cash, to meet payroll, to do other things, because this economy is hanging by a thread as it is. Other banks took a hit amid SVB's failure as investors and analysts scope out other problems similar to those faced by SVB, including First Republic Bank, whose shares fell as much as 52% during early trading and have since plummeted even more. Just two days after SVB failed, New York-based Signature Bank was shut down by regulators, becoming the third largest bank failure in U.S. history, 
right behind SVB. Like SVB, Signature Bank tried to find a buyer or raise funds, but was unsuccessful. Signature had previously suffered because of a bet on crypto, but board member and former congressman Barney Frank of the Dodd-Frank regulations said that the final blow to the bank was an SVB-generated panic. Sure, blame someone else. On Sunday, the Treasury Department announced protections for depositors at SVB and Signature Bank, assuring depositors they'll have access to their funds on Monday. However, shareholders and unsecured debt holders are not covered by that plan. However, we did read a statement from the Fed yesterday in Stream 87 um, where they were just basically extending lots of cash to everybody. Um, in a Monday speech, Biden insisted that the government is not pursuing a taxpayer-funded bailout, stating no losses will be borne by the taxpayers and distinguishing his administration's actions from the 2008 financial crisis bailout. Well, we may just be getting started here, so we'll see what happens in the end. The Federal Reserve announced an emergency lending program to ensure that banks can meet the needs of their depositors and to eliminate, quote, an institution's need to quickly sell those securities in times of stress. So, surprising fact, SVB recorded $212 billion in assets for the fourth quarter of 2022, just a few months ago, making it the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, second only to Washington Mutual, whose 2008 failure came as the bank had roughly $300 billion in assets. So not that much more, 300 versus 212. Silicon Valley Bank ranked as the 16th largest bank in the United States based on assets prior to its collapse. Key background, after the tech industry grew during the pandemic, SVB's clients deposited billions, bringing the bank from $60 billion in total deposits at the end of the first quarter 2020 to nearly $200 billion two years later. That's a lot of growth. While deposits came in, SVB invested in debt like U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, but as the Federal Reserve began to increase interest rates to combat inflation, the value of SB SVB's investments fell. Higher interest rates also took a toll on SVB's clients. Startup funding began to dry up as private fundraising became more costly, causing its clients to withdraw funds. Amid the surge in withdrawals, SVB sold assets, including bonds that had lost value due to interest rate increases, which created $1.8 billion in losses. Tangent. The failure of both SVB on Friday and cryptocurrency bank Silvergate on Wednesday sparked fears of contagion and drew uncomfortable comparisons to 2008. Some analysts agree contagion concerns are overblown in light of, quote, idiosyncratic issues at individual banks. In other words, just a few bad apples. Bank of America analyst. Now, you just have to laugh. Oh, it's a few bad apples. Uh, there's no need to worry about contagion, says Bank of America analyst, who clearly does not have, you know, any um, anything at stake there. Works for fucking Bank of America. Ibrahim Punawala said, as SVB and Silvergate primarily operated within industries vulnerable to higher interest rates, like cryptocurrencies, startups, and venture capital, Okay, fair points. And many banks have broader customer bases. But <clears throat> shares of some of the nation's largest banks, including J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, were up Friday after slumping on Thursday. Okay, so this is one of the older articles. It's from uh, Monday. So that's that one. Let's move on to the next one. And... Uh, all right, just making a note to myself. Let's talk about Signature Bank for just a minute. 
got two quick articles on that. Signature Bank had a criminal investigation looming before it collapsed. It's by Lauren Sforza from the 15th yesterday. Authorities were investigating Signature Bank's work ahead of its shutdown on Sunday, according to a Bloomberg report. Interesting. The report said that the Justice Department's offices in Manhattan and Washington were investigating whether the bank took enough measures to detect possible money laundering schemes orchestrated by clients, according to people familiar with the matter. Two other people told Bloomberg that the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, was also looking into the institution. So that criminal thing there, they said that they're, they were investigating whether the bank took enough measures to detect possible money laundering schemes by their clients. So in other words, was the bank being used as a place to launder money? And was the bank, you know, in other words, um, the bank is just a bank. And if it gets used for money laundering, it's not necessarily the bank's fault. They didn't tell the people, hey, come launder your money here. On the other hand, this whole thing of banking and money laundering has been around for a long time. And if you run a bank, you, in order to avoid complicity in that, actually have to take certain steps. So this is something that came out around the time of 2008, I remember. Was it Wachovia Bank was found to be like a major um, site of money laundering? I think it was out of Mexican cartels. Anyway, whatever the case, uh, this is a thing that, you know, if you're trying to run a, quote, honest bank, obviously banking is, is I mean, the way it's done in capitalism is based on exploitation. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're trying to at least comply with the law, etc., um, there's steps you have to take. So that's what they're under investigation for. Signature Bank was seized, but, you know, basically facilitating money laundering by sort of looking the other way. At, at least uh, looking the other way, maybe. Who knows? You know, I don't know what's in the case if they were possibly facilitating it more actively as well. But anyway, Signature Bank was seized by the New York Department of Financial Services on Sunday to, quote, protect depositors after its customers withdrew billions from the bank after the SVB bank collapsed on Friday. The bank had $89 billion in deposits at the end of last year, according to the department, but more than $79 billion of those deposits were not insured by the FDIC. So, again, FDIC only covers individual accounts up to a certain amount, and the overwhelming majority of them were not insured by the FDIC. The FDIC, oh yeah. So the FDIC and the SEC declined to confirm the report to the Hill, but uh, an SEC spokesperson pointed out to SEC Chair, uh, sorry, pointed to SEC Chair Gary Gensler's statement on Sunday about current market events. Quote, in times of increased volatility and uncertainty, we at the SEC are particularly focused on monitoring for market stability and identifying and prosecuting any form of misconduct that might threaten investors, capital formation, or the markets more broadly. So they're out to protect the overall survival of capitalism, not any individual capitalist that might be rocking the boat. Without speaking to any individual entity or person, we will investigate and bring enforcement actions if we find violations of the federal securities laws, unquote. The pair of bank closures over the weekend has raised concerns in the banking industry and has prompted some lawmakers to call for reform. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Katie Porter introduced a bill to repeal rollbacks in banking regulations that were enacted during the Trump administration. If enacted, the bill would put banks with at least $50 billion in assets back under strict Federal Reserve oversight and make them subject to Dodd-Frank Act stress tests. 
So this was again after 2008. They were like setting more limits, still not enough. And the two big to fail banks got bigger than they were after that, um, you know, bigger than they. Why am I having so much difficulty here? The size of the two big to fail banks in 2008 that, you know, the pitch was they needed to be bailed out because they were so big. If they failed, they would take everything else out with it. Remember, we are in an era of highly consolidated capitalism involving finance capital, where the financial capital and the industrial capital are kind of fused. Um, so if all those banks fail, it'll kind of take everything else with it. This is the state of the system right now. So uh, again, we're overdue for ending capitalism. We, the proletariat, that's our historical revolutionary duty. We have We've been up against stiff opposition, but the bottom line is we have not yet done that. And this is the point that we're at. Capitalism too big to fail. They're just sort of writing themselves checks to um, stay afloat. And there's sort of no more. Um, they're just consolidating these entities more and more. They'll put them under government oversight and things like that. But anyway, those too big to fail banks are bigger uh, became bigger after 2008 than they were in 2008. So what happens then? Then they're even more, uh, you know, in that too big to fail status, meaning the bailout is that much more inevitable and necessary, and etc. And this is just going to keep going in this direction until we end the system. So that's where you come in. Anyway, this would reverse the Trump era banking regulation rollback that raised the limit to $250 billion that exempted dozens of banks, including these two, SVB and Signature Bank, from the strictest federal oversight. Okay, so here we see, you know, one of the differences between the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, both are basically funded by the same interests. They do have a slightly different style to managing capitalism. Uh, the Republicans definitely do try to... Um, both of them have deregulated substantially over where we were prior to neoliberalism. And they've both been party to that overall consensus of the capitalist class that, hey, we need to um, you know, deregulate, privatize, and defund public stuff. However, the way that they're doing that, it, there are some slight differences. So during the Trump era, there were you know more of the rollbacks and... Um, so had those stayed in place, would this not have happened? It's possible. All right. Now, continuing on to the next um, signature bank thing. This is from The Motley Fool. Why did regulators close Signature Bank? It's not entirely clear. This is from today. Key point, Signature Bank was closed Sunday, but seemed to have been better situated than Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate. In other words, it was less precarious than those two, but it got closed anyway. Why? The bank seemed to have much better liquidity than SVB and wasn't looking at the same kind of unrealized bond losses. Former Congressman Barney Frank, who was on Signature's board, said that the closure of the bank caught him by surprise. Also, their Motley Fool issues rare all-in buy alert for people who are into such things. Signature Bank is one of three banks that have closed or been put under FDIC receivership within the last week. Three banks have closed or been put under receivership over the last week. Of the three, the one that still prompts the most questions is Signature Bank, largely because it seemed to have enough capital and liquidity 
to survive whatever crisis it was having before regulators shut it down on Sunday. I'm not suggesting that regulators shouldn't have closed it or that it didn't need to be closed, just that the situation is still a bit murky. We know that Silvergate Capital and Silicon Valley Bank, which was owned by SVB Financial, saw significant deposit outflows that resulted in the two banks having to sell bonds that were massively underwater, which effectively wiped out most or all of their equity. Silvergate suggested in a regulatory filing prior to its closing that it was likely less than well capitalized. SVB had enough bond losses on its books to wipe out all of its tangible common equity, which likely happened when depositors pulled $42 billion of deposits on March 9. Where are we? We also know that at the end of 2022, which was not long ago, Signature had tangible common equity of about $7.3 billion. Total unrealized losses in Signature's available for sale or AFS bond portfolio, which are bonds the bank intends to sell prior to maturity, were roughly $2.5 billion. But these losses are marked to market, that is, valued at the current market price, and therefore had already been subtracted from equity. Signature also had about $762 million of unrealized losses in its held-to-maturity bond portfolio, which are not marked to market. So, assuming that Signature had to sell both of these bond portfolios and take the losses, it still would have been looking at more than $6.5 billion of tangible common equity. The bank also had very strong capital ratios at the end of 2022. So, while the write-down would have hurt, I suspect its capital levels would still have been more than adequate. In other words, they wouldn't have wound up in the sort of, you know, pockets out, um, <laughs> you know, state at the end of uh, Monopoly. But anyway, Signature also appears to have been in a much better position from a liquidity standpoint. In fact, on March 8, the bank released updated financials. The bank reported having $4.54 billion in cash, borrowing balances of more than $6.5 billion, and more than $89 billion in deposits, which was up since the start of 2023. Furthermore, the bank said it had an additional borrowing capacity of roughly $29 billion. This week, Bloomberg cited an unnamed source, saying Signature's outflows on Friday amounted to 20% of deposits, which would be close to $18 billion. While certainly substantial, it looks like the bank could have covered that amount with cash on hand and its borrowing capacity. Even if the bank did have to sell bonds, it probably could have sold its AFS book without needing to dip into the HTM book. So again, that was the available for sale and HTM. So they could have sold their available for sale bonds without touching their longer term held to maturity bonds. What did the regulators say? Interestingly, Bloomberg reported Tuesday that regulators seized Signature after they, quote, lost faith in the bank. Quote, the bank failed to provide re reliable and consistent data, creating a, co a significant crisis of confidence in the bank's leadership, New York's Department of Financial Services said in a statement. The decision to take possession of the bank and hand it over to the FDIC was based on the current status of the bank and its ability to do business in a safe and sound manner on Monday. Former Congressman Barney Frank, who sat on Signature's board of directors and helped to author a critical banking regulation, Dodd-Frank, that was implemented following 2008, said that the closure caught him by surprise. Quote, by Sunday morning, the executives of the bank believed they had satisfied the need for the data and had secured the capital from the discount window at the Federal Reserve and elsewhere, Frank said. So in other words, he was surprised because he thought that Signature had done all the things that it needed to do. 
Frank also said he thought deposit outflows had stabilized by Sunday morning, but NYDFS said that withdrawal requests continued to pile up through the weekend. So we're talking about a run on the bank here where everybody tries to um, pull out their money. Still, federal banking regulators didn't announce that they were going to backstop deposits until Sunday night, which seems to have somewhat stabilized the situation at other banks facing similar pressure. So remember, folks, it's not a bailout. It's a backstop. That's the way they're talking about this now. And um, there are some differences in the way that the you know, bailout, as we knew it after 2008, was handled and what they've done so far here. But what it will end up being in the end, that's what we're keeping an eye on. Did crypto have anything to do with it? Like Silvergate, Signature had developed a real-time payments network that crypto exchanges and institutional investors used to transact fiat dollars in real time. Both Silvergate and Signature have come under intense scrutiny after the collapse of FTX, which had been a major client of Silvergate. So remember, FTX was the crypto exchange um, run by Sam Bankman-Fried, and it had been a rising star attracting enormous amounts of of investment as well as political influence they were uh, mega donors to both the democrats and republicans and that guy uh, sbf sam bankman fried was doing uh lots of appearances speaking at different political events uh recently so while it looked like silvergate would be facing significant regulatory issues it was more unclear if a signature would face those same challenges Management had outright said on the bank's last earnings call in January, recently, that it hadn't violated the Bank Secrecy Act or anti-money laundering rules due to its relationship with FTX. You can see the chart there, some kind of uh, funky stuff going on as far as rapid rise, rapid fall. With the FTX, it wasn't a matter of BSA, M a uh, BSA AML, so uh, the, the laws that were just referenced. So we were talking about were they uh, doing what they needed to do, fulfilling their responsibilities in terms of anti-money laundering? They announced in January that they were. So anyway, everyone thought that he, Sam Bankman-Fried, was legitimate, and he ended up being very Bernie Madoff-like. So I don't think anyone could say that they knew that and we could catch it. Signature's CEO, Joe DiPaolo, said in that call. Signature's COO, Eric Howell, also pointed out that while the bank had planned to add FTX to its payments network, it hadn't yet completed the integration process and therefore didn't have any client-related transactions related to FTX on its platform when FTX went down. Still, on Tuesday night, Bloomberg reported that Signature had been facing a criminal probe related to its crypto business and whether or not the bank had done enough to identify money laundering through its payments network. But Bloomberg also said that Signature had not yet been accused of wrongdoing. Additionally, when asked about the matter, NYDFS said that the closure of Signature had, quote, nothing to do with crypto. Interesting. A different kind of deposit base. A big part of what led to the demise of Silvergate and SVB is that each bank had too much deposit concentration in one sector. Most of Silvergate's deposits came from crypto clients, while more than half of SVB's deposits came from venture capital and private equity firms. Signature had exposure to venture capital, private equity, and crypto-related deposits. And like SVB, most of its deposits were not covered by the FDIC, with more than 94% of deposits in excess of $250,000. 
Signature also served a lot of wealthy clients and real estate investors that likely had the ability to move a lot of deposits at once. But the deposit base was still more diverse than SVB and Silvergate. At the end of 2022, only 4% of the bank's deposits came from venture capital and private equity clients, while crypto-related deposits were down to 16.5% of total deposits in January. Also, many thought the issues at Silvergate and SVB would end up being a net positive for Signature. A host of crypto firms, including Coinbase, actually began using Signature's payment systems and moved deposits over to the bank after Silvergate found itself on the brink of collapse in early March, so two weeks ago. Compass Point analysts also said in a research note on March 10 that they viewed the recent disruptions at Silvergate and SVB as positives for Signature. Questions remain. As of this writing Wednesday, I think a lot of questions still remain about the closure of Signature. While it does seem like the bank had sufficient liquidity and capital to handle significant deposit outflows, perhaps withdrawals that built up over the weekend were insurmountable to overcome. It would have been interesting to see what might have happened if the bank had stayed open until Sunday night when federal regulators announced the backstopping of deposits. So in other words... um, People were pulling their money out because they thought that if the bank went down, their money would go with it. But then when federal regulators announced that they were going to backstop it, protecting the deposits, maybe that would have stopped the run on the bank and let people put their money back in. So anyway, uh, but they closed it before that. Then, of course, maybe there is some truth that crypto issues led to the demise of the bank or that regulators simply lost patience with management and their ability to get accurate information from them. I do feel like Signature has not always been the best when it comes to disclosing information, particularly when it comes to its crypto business. The bank didn't even begin using a quarterly earnings slide deck until the start of 2022, which I always found bizarre for a bank of its size. The collapse of Signature may have been unavoidable, and the most likely scenario does seem to be a deposit run of epic proportions. But what transpired is a lot less clear than what happened at Silvergate and SVB. That was written by... From Berkowitz. All right, next article. We're going to go back into SVB before we pivot to Credit Suisse for two. And where are we here? Uh, SVB. All right, this is a short one. European authorities slam the total and utter incompetence, and that's a quote, of U.S. regulators in handling the SVB collapse. This is from today, five hours ago. Or maybe seven hours ago now. Uh, Story by JSOR Insider, Jennifer Soar. Okay, European regulators have slammed the U.S. response to SVB's collapse per a Financial Times report. One regulator called it a, quote, joke, and another said it showed, quote, total and utter incompetence. That comes after the U.S. guaranteed all SVB deposits, even those that were not insured, over $250,000. So now we get... Some, um, you know, the U.S. is doing what it feels like it needs to do. Some in Europe are not happy. Now, we're going to read through this. They don't mention a lot of names, so you can't break down who among the European authorities, uh, you know, and sort of what um, trends in politics and management of capital um, philosophy they represent. But anyway, let's proceed. 
European authorities have slammed U.S. regulators for their handling of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, according to the Financial Times. In particular, they pointed to U.S. guarantees on all SVB deposits, even those exceeding the typical $250,000 limit. One European official was surprised at U.S. regulators' total and utter incompetence, adding that it came after a decade of, quote, long and boring meetings in which the U.S. pushed to end bank bailouts and global bank policy standards. So... They spend a decade having meetings telling the entire world, you know, we need to get away from um, bank bailouts as far as being global bank policy standards. And then they turn around and do exactly that, although they're not calling it that. But anyway, a former UK policymaker who played a role in creating the standards called the US response to SVB a, quote, disaster. Another European regulator called it a, quote, joke blasting President Biden's claim that the handling of SVB's collapse would pose no cost on the taxpayer. Quote, at the end of the day, this is a bailout paid by the ordinary people, and it's a bailout of the rich venture capitalists, which is really wrong, the regulator told the FT. I might track down this article for the next stream, because I really want to see more about who's saying that. Biden has emphasized that the response to SVB's collapse differed from the bailouts of big banks that ruled markets in 2008, as SVB's investors aren't protected and are on the line for losing their cash. And yeah, I mean, people, you know, depositors losing their money, that's bad. At the same time, they also knew what they were getting into when they put their money into a non-insured account. So where does that accountability end within the rules of capitalism? Other Wall Street commentators have voiced their support instead with Nobel economist Paul Krugman, we were just talking about the neo-Keynesianism of Krugman, calling the rescue of depositors sensible though frustrating. Silicon Valley Bank has roiled markets since collapsing and being seized by the FDIC last Friday. Regional bank stocks suffered a steep sell-off on Monday, though some experts say that the risk of contagion from SVB's collapse is low, given the unique problems of the bank. Well, time will tell. I'm not in a position to say otherwise. Um, of course, they're all hoping beyond hope. And this is the thing. In politics and economics, so much relies on the confidence of you know, relevant parties, whether it's the voters or the investors or whatever, um, so, you know, them saying, oh, I think it's really risky, that's going to further influence the situation to go in a way that it maybe doesn't want. So they really have an incentive to lie here to sort of or paint the rosiest picture possible in order to uh, inspire more confidence because that confidence in the investors or voters or whatever the particular situation is can actually influence the outcome. So, uh, you know, a, um, a rosier than is realistic or supported by the facts thing can actually be a tool for these people to actually um, protect their system. So their basic talking point is SVB was doing unique things that a lot of other banks are doing and the other banks aren't doing those unique things. Therefore, uh, those other banks don't have the same risk. Please believe me. And, you know, we'll see. So, um, just to follow up down at the bottom here, Silicon Valley's bank just suffered the worst financial meltdown in 15 years. Here's what you should know and what A-list market minds are saying. Anyway, we're not going to get into that right now. Let's move on to uh, the next thing about the European perspective on this 
question. Well, actually, sort of tra uh, transitioning over into the uh, Credit Suisse stuff because, okay, they just had their own problem. <laughs> Large U.S. banks lead First Republic Rescue. Credit Suisse takes up $54 billion lifeline. So you were saying, <laughs> you know, uh, let's get into this. This is by Pete Schroeder, Chris Prentice, and John Revel. Several large banks are in talks to deposit billions of dollars in First Republic Bank. Wait, so we weren't talking about that before. This is another bank. Sources familiar with the matter said on Thursday. So this is very recent. Um, as the U.S. lender became the latest to be swept up in fears of a fast-growing banking crisis. Wait a minute. thought this whole thing was under control. This article is from... The date is not listed there, but they're talking about on Thursday, so this must have been today. Okay, interesting. Um, the collapse of Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley Bank last week has triggered days of market turmoil, ensnaring Swiss lender Credit Suisse by Wednesday, that was yesterday, and forcing it to borrow up to $54 billion from Switzerland's central bank to shore up liquidity and restore investor confidence. The spotlight whipsawed back to the United States on Thursday as banks led an effort to shore up support for First Republic, a regional lender, this is again New York City, um, whose shares have tumbled 70% in the last nine trading sessions. So as far as contagion, I don't know yet what the direct links are between First Republic's financial position and investments and if it was directly tied to the other but seems to be having a similar problem. Let's keep reading. Four major banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, Citigroup Inc., Bank of America Corp., we just mentioned them before, and Wells Fargo & Company are part of the rescue, one of the sources said. Now keep in mind, especially after 2008, the amount of consolidation in the banking industry has intensified dramatically. Um, I mean, so many, you know, previously, like the the 30 or 40 largest banks basically got shrunk down to just a handful. And so this is like, when they say four major banks, that's kind of all, all we have. Um, probably not exactly, but it's close to um, most of what we have here. Anyway, in all, 11 banks were involved and the rescue plan is supported by U.S. regulators, one of the sources said. I mean, they're trying to, uh, you know... This is capitalist class solidarity here. They're trying to save their system. Again, this is happening right now, so we do not know the outcome yet. The plan involves banks depositing $29 billion into the lender, according to one source. And practically at one point, when does this become different from sort of effectively buying it or merging it? You know, somebody was saying, at what point do you just simply support nationalization? And, you know, as we have read from various works uh, from Marxists, uh, including um, Marx's son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, on nationalization, the capitalist class nationalizes things which it recognizes to be in their common interest. They run all industry on a private, individually owned or, you know, owned by small groups of capitalists. Uh, but not by the whole class or by the capitalist state, in other words. They run things on more of that individual for-profit basis for as long as it makes overall financial sense according to the economic interests of the capitalist class. However, 
when something is in their interest to just nationalize because they all use it a lot and so on, like roads, like a post office, whatever, then they're going to do that because it helps their system. So at what point do the U.S. banks simply get merged and regulated to the point that they're effectively nationalized? Well, at the point where that's the only way that capitalism can survive, I, I would say is the short answer to that question. Anyway, uh, so they're depositing $29 billion. These four large banks are depositing $29 billion into, uh, into First Republic. First Republic Bank stock was trading up about 10% on Thursday afternoon, erasing earlier losses after being halted several times on Thursday. Shares of major U.S. banks bounced from recent lows, with J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Bank of America all up more than 1% on Thursday afternoon. That would be today. While the benchmark S&P 500 banks index recovered 1.9%. Similar banks also rebounded from the recent sell-off, with Fifth Third Bank Corp and Citizens Financial Group up 1.9% and 3.2% respectively. Earlier, Credit Suisse became the first major global bank to be thrown an emergency lifeline since 2008 as fears of contagion swept the banking sector and raised doubts over whether central banks will be able to sustain aggressive interest rate hikes. However, the European Central Bank raised interest rates by 50 basis points on Thursday, as flagged, stressing the resilience of the euro-area banking sector while assuring that it had plenty of tools to offer liquidity support if needed. The ECB said it was, quote, monitoring current market tensions closely and stands ready to respond as necessary to preserve price stability and financial stability in the euro area, unquote. Credit Suisse shares closed up 19% higher, recovering some of their 25% falls. They're still down 6% on Wednesday. Since March 8, before last week's collapse of SVB, European banks have lost around $165 billion in market value, Refinitiv data shows. The unease spread beyond the financial sector, with German corporate treasurers urged by their industry association not to underestimate the current situation. Okay, so people are getting worried. Policymakers have emphasized that the current turmoil, which has investors fearing another collapse like that of Lehman Brothers, is different from the global financial crisis 15 years ago, as banks are better capitalized today and funds are more easily available in the event of a crisis. U.S. Treasury Secretary, Gen yeah, but at what point does it still not cover it? That's really what's relevant. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the country's banking system remains sound thanks to decisive and forceful actions following the collapse of SVB. Alliance, one of Europe's biggest financial firms, said authorities were, quote, well-equipped to deal with any liquidity crisis, unlike what happened during 2007-2008. Investors are also focused on any action by central banks, with traders now betting that the Federal Reserve, which last week was expected to accelerate its interest rate hikes in the face of persistent inflation, may hit pause or reverse course. Rapidly rising interest rates have made it harder for some businesses to pay back or service loans, increasing the chances of losses for lenders already worried about a recession. And the last screen, focus on facts. Credit Suisse said it would exercise an option to borrow up to 50 billion Swiss francs, or $54 billion, from the Swiss National Bank, which confirmed it would provide liquidity to the bank against sufficient collateral. 
Chief Executive Ulrich Kerner told Credit Suisse staff in a memo that they should focus on facts as he pledged to move forward rapidly with a plan to streamline operations. Switzerland's second largest bank's stock market value has fallen by 90% since its peak in February 2007 of around $91 billion to $8.66 billion, <laughs> following a prolonged slide in its shares. Yeah, I would say so. Analysts say, uh, said that the measures will buy time for Credit Suisse to carry out a planned restructuring and possibly take further steps to pare back the Swiss lender. Quote, we would not exclude the possibility of further restructuring statements from management designed to further simplify the bank, Thomas Hallett at KBW said in a note. Credit Suisse bankers contacted clients in Asia to reassure them after the latest inflow of funds. Quote, we've been telling them to read the statements and look at the fact that we are buying 3 billion francs worth of bonds because they're so cheap, said a Hong Kong-based senior banker who declined to be named. The 167-year-old bank's problems shifted into high gear on Wednesday, yesterday, after its largest investor said it could not provide more funds due to regulatory constraints. So that could go in a number of directions. Um, regu regulations maybe could be repealed. Um, anyway, you know, time will tell. This is really happening in real time. So our last article on this is now we're bouncing back to the U.S. because, okay, uh, European financial regulators are not happy about the way that the U.S. is handling SVB and Signature. Well, Credit Suisse is being sued by U.S. shareholders over finances and controls. Credit Suisse Group AG was sued on Thursday by shareholders in the United States. So this is shareholders, fair, although, again, the, the people who run the U.S. government are also capitalists. But anyway, by shareholders in the U.S. Uh, who accused the Swiss bank of concealing problems with its finances. No, not possible, because everything's fine as they will constantly tell you all the time, every day, no matter what. The lawsuit in the federal court in Camden, New Jersey, said Credit Suisse made false or misleading statements or failed to disclose that it suffered from, quote, significant outflows in its fourth quarter and material weaknesses in its internal controls. Anyway, there's a video about that, but that's just sort of a, uh, a tidbit there. So let's go back into the chat on this. We're not going to get to the... Uh, the long COVID follow-up, because I do want to do the China article, and we'll just work the long COVID uh, reminder into the other video. But I do want to say that um, since doing the, the long COVID video yesterday, a lot of people have said, wow, that sounds like what I've been experiencing since I had COVID. So check it out. Uh, you may have long COVID. We'll be posting a separate clip about that. All right. So what's going on in the... Um, in the chat here, catch up with uh, where we left off. Okay, found it. All hail the invisible hand of the market. So somebody said, is the quote, you know, Nordic style capitalism similar to Keynesianism? Somebody says, I would like it, liken it to that. A government regulating capitalism, reformism, i.e., you know, revolutionaries can pursue reforms while pursuing revolution as well. Reformism as such is when you restrict yourself to just reforms. In other words, leaving capitalism intact, the existence of the capitalist class, etc., but just merely trying to reform the way that capitalism works. 
the unique economic position that Sweden had after World War II made reformism work for a time. But since all states and their common bourgeois affairs being entangled in the global system of capitalism and how it organically, by its own nature, falls into crisis, makes reformism long-term unsustainable. A capitalism in organic crisis will bring reformism with it into crisis because really reformism is just another branch of capitalism. It's just another um, man capitalism management style. Did you see the video of what happens when the FDIC seizes a bank, they actually go undercover and wait until the last person comes out, and then they rush in and literally announce that it's all the governments now. I didn't, but I have that link. Is that the 60 Minutes link that's going around? I, I have a tab open, but I haven't watched it. So that turned out to be a lie. They want Elon Musk to buy it now, because Elon Musk just makes everything better, let me tell you. By the time that your um, enterprise gets into the Elon Musk territory, you're just beyond fucked. Yeah, second largest bank collapse in U.S. history so far. Truly the end of history. Mortgage-backed securities, it's 2007 all over again. Yeah, they said that with a straight face in the, uh, the Fed's announcement yesterday, that it was like, we will be providing liquidity to all these banks as long as you have qualifying um you know you're holding qualifying assets and mortgage-backed securities were on there oh okay like i know some things are different about like how you can package the derivatives and things but man so they're afraid of bank contagion but not covid contagion well because you know just uh just some workers die from covid contagion who cares about that if you're a capitalist? Uh, believing money is real and COVID is fake. There you go. They're inventing $2 trillion out of thin air for this. So traditional and crypto alike are both in hot water. Many who claim that cryptocurrency was somehow safe against a market crash seems like they're crashing first. Crypto is a scam. That's kind of all I'm going to say about it right now. It's not any like more real than other money. And the people involved in it are the biggest shyster, like huckster, scam artists that you can like imagine. The banks were too big to fail in the same way that my car is too fast to crash. What's next? It's not a bailout, it's a hand up. I mean, yeah, they're virtually at that point now. Krug, <laughs> Krug life, Krug out. Uh, purely speculative, but if AI is turned to the task of avoiding economic crashes, how long before it becomes full socialist? I have thoughts, but let's continue. Maybe Elon was right to fear the genie of AI because they inevitably be, uh, inevitably become a comrade of the proletariat. I don't know. I would encourage anyone with a chat GPT account, engage it about what is the role of AI in uh, proletarian revolution in the 21st century. Um, see what comes out. That'd be an interesting show to do, actually. Uh, things along those lines. Um, you know, what is the path back to socialism from counter-revolution, such as was experienced in the USSR? Would love to hear some, uh, some responses and work on them from there. I know it's really good at things like uh, computer code. I was watching videos of people saying, how do I improve this code? And like, even experienced coders being like really shocked at the um, 
they're like, I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good suggestion. And I guess some other things I saw, like people using it to like produce musical like chord sequences and stuff. But um, yeah, it's time to put chat GPT to work for um, anything we can milk out of it for, for proletarian analysis, which by the way, you know, um, on the thing we were talking about before about, you know, listening to this channel has improved my analysis. I mean, doing this channel has improved mine as well. So Marxism, as we said before, is a set of tools. Being a Marxist is not an identity. It is, uh, Marxism is a set of tools for analyzing social and historical development and class struggle and class conflict and so on. Being a Marxist is somebody who is educated in and, you know, skilled at actually applying that. In the end, what we're trying to do here is do analysis of historical development and class struggle. Historical came out a little weird. Historical development and class struggle from a proletarian rather than a capitalist or bourgeois perspective. Marxism is a tool for that. So uh, that's, in the end, what we're really trying to do is just analyze the state of things from a proletarian class standpoint. Marxism provides tools for that. All right. Anyway, so purely speculative, if AI is turned to the task of avoiding economic crashes, you can't do it. It's going to be like one of those, um, you know, the the end of the movie War Games where the computer runs all the scenarios and then it's just like the only way to win is not to play. It probably will, will come to that. Um, but in the meantime, you know, uh, what, one of the things we know actually about 2008, micro-trading was driving... Um, you know, a lot of the economic activity. So for people who don't know, um, there's something called micro-trading driven by algorithms that conduct thousands of financial transactions per second. So you've heard of like, you know, day trading and penny stocks. This is like millisecond trading. Um, you know, I don't know what AI is being used for in that regard already, but my guess is that in the hands of capital, AI is literally just going to crash the economy more rather than less, but we'll see. It's so weird that you can invest in banks. Yep, joke of a fake economy, but this is capitalism. The contagion comes from the crash of the Silicon Valley tech companies. Less money going into the banks from the companies, defaulted loans from workers in that industry, and banks being over-leveraged in bonds, which are ne negatively affected by inflation. Big ups, Ulrich. Uh, Credit Suisse stock is still 97% lower than the highs reached in 2007 and about 20% compared to five days ago. Credit Suisse got a small boost in stocks thanks to the 50 billion francs they got from the Swiss Central Bank. If, uh, yeah, we got it. Also, please stop posting your comment, Pidars. Uh, Twitch identified you as a likely ban evader and we don't need to see your comment like 59 times here. What is the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a bank? Bertolt Brecht. Finance bros are having a sad one. Uh, they are some of the lowest form of scum, so I endorse that. Is it just me, or are we fighting against more than the 1%? Usually it'll be 99% versus the 1%, but I feel like the amount of oppressors and its supporters increased. Well, I mean, 1% is still a lot. Um, you know, what you've got... As far as that in the U.S., you've got maybe the top 1% of the rich capitalists, and then, of course, 
fewer within that are even richer. About 10% of the population, 5 to 10% is petty bourgeois, small employers, small landlords, things like that. And I believe it's about 90% who are just proletarian and really don't have any capital. Um, but many people have at least petty bourgeois consciousness, even if they're proletarian. So I, I don't know where you're coming from, John, exactly as far as like reaching that. But yeah, it's probably more than the 1% as far as some of their confused uh, sympathizers. Oh, okay. I got it. He posted all that in 10 seconds. Well, that's, that's, we don't need that. All right. So let's get into our final segment for the day. We're going to be doing this article, which um, we're going to be translating. I just wanted to show it. This is from a group called uh, Rotefront. And there it is uh, translated on capitalism with Chinese characteristics from June 2020. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to make a note about uh, Roadfront, which I had actually linked to. Um, they have a channel in Russian on YouTube, and I had linked to that in the past. However, I realized that they, uh, this is the Russian labor front. Okay, and um, if you check this out, it was formed by Left Front the Russian Communist Workers' Party, and some unions back in 2012. Um, unfortunately, there was a split last year over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And basically, um, some in the Revolutionary Communist Workers' Party started working with literal Nazbals, the National Bolsheviks. So... Um, the other Russia of E.V. Limonov, that's a you know fascist um, with a little red dressing party, uh, Vladimir Kvachov, and um, anyway, so they start doing this um, alliance with the far right and conferences um, endorsing the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. They changed Rot Front to RTF. They took all the communist red off the website. It all got changed to blue. And um, so anyway, the RKRP uh, plans to recreate the road front together with the United Communist Party. That is not part of this Nazbal alliance. So that's just a little bit of what is going on um, over there. Unfortunately, that, you know, we see these... Uh, um, moves into opportunism sometimes and uh it is what it is still this article was written prior to that and let's get into it so on capitalism with chinese characteristics i just want to add again this is following up on yesterday's article from the greek communist party kke the international role of china and it will be followed up by at least one more article um the great reversal the privatization of China, 1979 to 1989. It's important for people to understand this uh, before they get too far down the rabbit hole. China is, you know, even though they're doing a lot of capitalism, they still do some things that are quite different from anything you'll find in Europe or the United States. That said, where are they headed? If they haven't already lost political control in making all these accommodations to capital, you know, how long before they do and so on. Also, is what they're doing theoretically supported within Marxism-Leninism? Well, let's read. 
What kind of, quote, socialism is in China? Despite the unambiguous assessment of the role of China given by the leaders of our world communist movement, many of the left of our country, activists as well as leaders of workers and communist parties, in all seriousness, declare that China, or rather the PRC, is a, quote, socialist country in which socialism is still not built, unquote. There is also a theory about the prolonged NEP, which is being used to justify Chinese market reforms. To understand whether this is actually so, we first analyze what socialism is from the point of view of Marxism-Leninism as the theoretical foundation of communism. And if you don't have that, then you can't really make these assessments. Okay, so Lenin defined socialism as the process of destroying classes, or abolishing classes, class differences, and also as communism in its lower phase. So quoting Lenin, what is usually called socialism, Marx called the first or lower phase of communist society. Since the means of production become common property, the word communism is also applicable here, if we do not forget that this is not complete communism. Okay, ending the quote. More fully, uh, so this was auto-translated, I have to add, so I'll be doing a little on the fly here. Um, a more full elaboration on the concept of socialism can be found in the work of R.S. Ozen on some theoretical and methodological approaches to understanding socialism in contemporary Marxist thought. Continuing, indeed, after the October Socialist Revolution, the process of destroying class differences and socializing the means of production is launched. Thus, at the end of 1917, private commercial banks were nationalized in Soviet Russia, and in 1918, the nationalization of all large-scale industry, like sugar, oil, machine building, etc., began. In total, by the middle of 1918, 1,222 industrial enterprises were nationalized, and already, from the summer of 1919, not only all large industrial enterprises, but also medium ones, as well as most of the small industrial enterprises, passed to the Soviet state. At the same time, the main goal of the nationalization carried out by the proletarian state was the transfer of the means of production under the control of the working people. As for the destruction of class differences, as the data from Table 1 show, already by 1937, in the USSR, the exploiting classes like landlords, kulaks, and bourgeoisie were completely liquidated. The majority of the population were collective farm peasantry, workers, and employees. Quote, Soviet society consists, as you know, this is a Stalin quote, of two classes, workers and peasants. The class of capitalists in the field of industry has disappeared. There were no merchants and speculators in the field of trade. All the exploiting classes were thus liquidated. The working class remained. The class of peasants remained. The intelligentsia remained. The proletariat of the USSR turned into a completely new class, into the working class of the USSR, which destroyed the capitalist economic system, approved socialist ownership, of the tools and means of production, and directed Soviet society on the path of communism. It's a quote from Stalin's report on the draft constitution of the USSR. By 1937, uh, the, in the process of building socialism, the exploiting classes gradually ceased to exist. This was facilitated by the nationalization of enterprises and the association of peasants into collective farms, which in turn made it possible to carry out industrialization, and ultimately raise the standard of living of the entire population. 
But most importantly, the process of building socialism would not have been possible without the dictatorship of the proletariat, which fought against the remnants of the local bourgeoisie under the leadership of the Communist Party, based on the harmonious system of Marxism-Leninism. Does this process take place in modern China? To understand this issue, let us first turn to the history of the creation of the People's Republic of China. Chinese Socialist Revolution The People's Republic of China was formed in 1949 after the Communists, led by Mao Zedong, came to power as a result of the Socialist Revolution. The People's State nationalized large-scale industry and confiscated most of the property of foreign capitalists. By the end of 1956, 96.3% of peasant farms were in agricultural production cooperatives. To understand the complex socioeconomic processes in the PRC of that time and today, let us turn to the scientific work, The Social Structure of Chinese Society, Dynamics of Stratification Processes, by Xiaodi Wang, Department of Sociology, People's Friendship University of Russia. Quote, in the period 1949 to 56, under the leadership of the Communist Party in the PRC, notable successes were achieved in building socialism. As the agrarian reform deepened and capital was confiscated, the representatives of the comprador bourgeoisie and the landowning class were liquidated. Workers, peasants, the petty bourgeoisie, and the national capitalist class shaped the social structure of Chinese society. At this stage of social transformations, the working class, including employees of state organizations, made up 3.3% of the population. Peasants, 88.1%. So this is super important to keep in mind when we're talking about Chinese revolutionary history. Anyway, continue, like it was the case in Russia that they had to do the proletarian-peasant alliance because the proletariat was not as fully developed. Like in the U.S. today, as we're just talking about, we're talking about class composition where you know, 90% of the population or more is proletarian. Um, that was definitely not the case at the time in the USSR or China. So anyway, continuing. Um, and the national capitalist class, 0.4% of the population. The social structure had a pyramidal form. The basis of the pyramid was a huge number of peasants, and all other classes in the aggregate did not exceed 12% of the population. In 1956 to 1978, China made the transition from a new democratic society to a socialist one. The social structure also changed. The industrial and commercial bourgeoisie was eliminated. Peasants and handicraftsmen became members of people's communes, entering the class of peasants. Urban handicraftsmen turned into workers and employees of state and collective enterprises, entering the working class. Cadre workers and intellectuals are also considered part of this. Thus, a two-class social structure emerged, the class of workers and peasants in one layer, but the peasants occupied a lower position relative to workers in the social hierarchy. Deng Xiaoping's reforms. Deng Xiaoping was the de facto leader of China from the late 1970s to the early 1990s. The market reforms that began after 1978 helped to push the Chinese economy back to capitalism, sole proprietorships, merchants, etc., reappear. So note, reappear. They were eliminated, and then they were brought back. That would be the opposite of moving towards abolishing these classes that exist under capitalism. In 1982, individual entrepreneurship was legalized in the PRC Constitution, which contributed to the fact that the number of individual farms increased by more than 14 times. 
again, as opposed to state-owned or collective farms. In 1985 to 1991, new social strata are emerging, inequality is growing in Chinese society, a system of contract liability is introduced. Quote, the new law on the labor contract has changed the position of the management of enterprises and workers. The heads of state-owned enterprises have received more rights for independent management and have become professional managers, while workers have been hired. At this time, various types of private property arose, which gave rise to new social strata, a stratum of private entrepreneurs, managers, specialists, and technical personnel appeared. In the countryside, thanks to the introduction of settlement and volost enterprises, a large number of peasant entrepreneurs and peasant workers arose. At this stage, the level of economic inequality increased compared to the initial stage of the reforms. So again, the initial stage was late 70s to mid 80s. Now we're talking about the second period, mid 80s, 85 to 91. So keep in mind also, the USSR, which was partly inspired by these changes, um, also introduced similar types of capitalism, and it resulted in the complete destruction of their entire political system, which took the industrial economic system with it. Anyway, continuing. Um, in the countryside, thanks to... Okay, sorry, we're further on. At this stage, the level of economic inequality increased compared to the initial stage of the reforms. The income of employees of non-state organizations became higher than those of state ones. In the public sector, incomes of workers and monopolies lagged behind high-tech enterprises. The gap between the incomes of urban and rural residents in 1991 reached 2.58 times. A sense of unfair social distri distribution of income began to spread in the public's mind. In the 1990s, the gap in the incomes of the population continued to grow. Quote, the pace of creating a non-equilibrium social economy is accelerating. Instead of the old social structure, a new one arises, in which the criteria for social stratification are economic resources, human capital, and power. Deng Xiaoping's market economic reforms brought about the massive development of private property. In 1999, there were more than a million private enterprises, which is more than 12 times higher than their number in 1991, about 93,000 enterprises. Also, in the course of the reforms, state-owned enterprises are being privatized, the owners of which are their former managers. Thus, the big bourgeoisie is born. So you had people who are managing the businesses now becoming private owners of them, and then they constitute a rich capitalist class or big bourgeoisie. Quote, reforms in the public sector have also changed the socioeconomic status of workers. After the introduction of the labor contract in 1995, the system of lifelong employment the right to work under socialism, and preferential security was abolished. The focus on reducing jobs and increasing productivity caused an increase in unemployment. Laid-off workers replenished the stratum of the poor in the urban community. Relations between workers and employers became more and more tense. In 1993 to 1999, the number of litigations on labor conflicts increased annually by 47.5%. The government had taken a number of fiscal and financial measures to strengthen the central government, which has had a significant impact on the regional distribution of resources. Thus, the leadership of the center, provinces, and large cities owned more and more resources, and the country and Volost less and less, which led to a decrease in the standard of living and income of peasants and a gap in the economic indicators of the city and the countryside. In 1992 to 1999, 
the incomes of the urban population were 2.5 to 2.86 times higher than the incomes of the rural population, unquote. We as Marxists understand that modern capitalist economy is divided primarily into two antagonistic classes, the owners of the means of production, capitalists, and those who are deprived of ownership of the means of production, wage workers. However, for the most graphic picture of social inequality in China, characteristic of any capitalist society, let us turn to the theory of stratification, obviously beneficial to the local ruling class. As a result of market reforms in modern China, the following social class structure has developed, which in official rhetoric reflects the division of citizens into strata. While it is believed that the status of a citizen is the higher, uh, the higher, oh, is higher, the higher the stratum they occupy, from the first, the highest, to the tenth, or lowest. So now you've got a social structure emerging with uh, ten strata of different social standings. And there, it's in Russian there, but there's the chart, and they explain, the first stratum includes state leaders. The second stratum is occupied by top and middle managers engaged in large and medium business activities. The third stratum is private entrepreneurs with at least eight employees. The fourth stratum is occupied by professional and technical specialists. The fifth stratum is the lowest and middle stratum of employees. The sixth stratum is formed by small industrialists and merchants who, given sufficient capital, employ several workers. The seventh stratum includes people working in the service sector who, in terms of their socioeconomic status, are close to production workers. The eighth stratum is occupied mainly by workers employed in industry and construction. The ninth stratum is formed by agricultural workers. Their status in the Chinese economic model is rather low, and their cultural and economic resources are significantly less than those of other strata. And finally, the tenth stratum is occupied by unemployed and semi-unemployed Chinese, or you could say underemployed, Chinese citizens living both in cities and in villages. From the table, we see that after the revolution in 1952, private entrepreneurs, i.e. the bourgeoisie, accounted for only 0.2% of the total population of the PRC. By 1978, as a result of the strengthening of socialism, private ownership of the means of production was eliminated. So that was the progress that was made up to the beginning of these market reforms under Deng Xiaoping in 78 and on. In 2001, as a result of the market reforms and the rollback to capitalism, the percentage of private entrepreneurs rose to 1, and the percentage of individual industrialists and merchants to 7.1%. So that's a big increase, well, from zero. It turns out that if we proceed from the definition of socialism as a process of destroying class distinctions, then we see that from the moment of the revolution in 1949 up to the market reforms of 1978, the socialist way prevailed in the PRC economy, and the bourgeois class was practically eliminated. However, with the introduction of market reforms in 1978, there was a revival not only of the petty and middle bourgeoisie, but also the privatization of large state-owned enterprises, which contributes to the emergence of the big bourgeoisie, because they would become the private owners of them. You know, privatization implies a private owner. That's who was becoming them. That is, since 1978, as a result of market reforms, socialism in the PRC has not only been built, but capital... Oh, sorry. Try that one again. Since 1978, as a result of market reforms, socialism in the PRC has not only not been built, but capitalism has actively been restored. 
imperialism with Chinese characteristics. Today, China is moving toward the highest stage of capitalism, imperialism, competing with such imperialist predators as the USA, Japan, and Germany. Chinese capitalists are mercilessly exploiting not only their own workers, but also the workers of other less developed countries, Southeast Asia, post-Soviet countries, African countries, and they also seek to control an increasing amount of natural resources around the world. So in 2015, Chinese companies controlled a quarter of Kazakhstan's oil production and a fifth of its oil products market. The Chinese capitalists also had an invisible hand in dispersing the strike of oil workers in Jana Ozen demanding higher wages. According to eyewitnesses, at least 60 people died and 400 were injured. Overall, in 2009, China's direct investment in the world amounted to $56.53 billion, 5.1% of the total investment in the world, placing China in fifth position among the world's largest investors. NEP or perestroika? Now let's consider the theory of the prolonged NEP in China, based on the experience of the Soviet Union. In the USSR, the new economic policy began to be implemented in 1921, very early in, in its history, by the decision of the 10th Congress of the RCPB. In the conditions of devastation after the revolution and the Civil War, the NEP made it possible to revive small-scale industry and trade, as well as to strengthen the alliance between the peasantry and the working class on an economic basis. The war communism surplus was replaced by a tax in kind, which left more surplus for the peasants to sell. Quote, the NEP allowed some development of capitalist elements while maintaining the commanding heights of the national economy in the hands of the state of the dictatorship of the proletariat. It ensured the rise of productive forces on the basis of the growth of socialist and the displacement of capitalist elements the transformation of a multi-structural economy into a single social econo uh, socialist economy based on in the industrialization of the country and the cooperation of agriculture. So that's really key of what was the point of the NEP. Politsturm has actually a very good video about the NEP and also comparing it to um, the restoration of capitalism, which it was not. It was completing some of the development and economic activity which was necessary during the early years of realignment after the revolution, World War One, and Civil War um, that allowed the, the communists to basically align the pieces that they needed to start constructing socialism. So I just want to read that again. The NEP allowed some development of capitalist elements, again, temporarily, while maintaining the commanding heights of the national economy in the hands of the state of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which was firmly under communist control. And what do they mean by commanding heights of the national economy? They mean the very largest industry, um, you know, on sort of national, big regional scale, like the, the most important industry. It also ensured the rise of productive forces on the basis of the growth of socialist and the displacement of capitalist elements. The transformation of a multi-structural economy into a single socialist economy based on the industrialization of the country and the cooperation of the agri uh, cooperation of agriculture. So those were some of the changes under the NEP, which were done for a certain amount of time. Then when those tasks were completed, and it didn't take that long, this was replaced with new policy. The economy of the Soviet state during the NEP included four different ways, the socialist way, the state capitalist way, the capitalist way, and the small commodity or petty capitalist way. 
At the same time, from the very beginning of the introduction of a new economic policy compared to war communism, the Soviet government emphasized that the NEP is a temporary retreat, and already at the 11th Party Congress, Lenin declared that the retreat is over and put forward the slogan, Preparation of an Offensive Against Private Capital. Thus, the socialist structure grew from 81% in 1924 and 25 to 86% in 1926 to 1927, while the private sector fell over that same period from 19% to 14%. Quote, this meant that the industrialization, or this meant that industrialization in the USSR had a pronounced socialist character, that the industry of the USSR was developing along the path of the victory of the socialist system of production, that in the field of industry, the question of who whom was already a foregone conclusion in favor of socialism. By 1936, capitalist elements were completely eliminated in the USSR. The socialist way of life ousted the rest in all areas of the national economy. So again, we're talking about a period of a little bit over 10 years in which the capitalist elements were completely ousted through this guided process of the NEP. And that was going on during that time. It wasn't this massive ramping up of capitalism. Quote, the powerful socialist industry exceeded the pre-war output by seven times and completely ousted private industry. In agriculture, the world's largest mechanized, equipped with new technology, socialist production in the form of a system of collective farms and state farms has won. By 1936, the kulaks had been completely eliminated as a class and the individual sector no longer played any serious role in the country's economy. The entire trade turnover was concentrated in the hands of the state and the cooperatives. The exploitation of man by man is destroyed forever. Well, at least until the 80s. Public socialist ownership of the means of production has established itself as the unshakable foundation of the new socialist system in all branches of the national economy. In the new socialist society, crises, that would be what we were talking about earlier with the uh, banking panics, etc., poverty, unemployment, and ruin have disappeared forever. Sounds good. It can be concluded that the NEP is not a frozen concept, but a combination of various ways of managing that the proletarian state needs only until the socialist mode of the economy supplants or replaces the capitalist one. Then and only then is the victory of socialism possible. On the contrary, with the strengthening of the capitalist infrastructure, capitalism is restored, and as a result, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is established. Now let's look at modern China, whose economy is compared with the Soviet NEP. In 1978, before the start of Deng Xiaoping's market reforms, the private sector was practically ousted. State property accounted for 56% of the country's GDP, 43% for collective property, so you have to 99% there, and only 1% of GDP from non-public property. So the private sector is down to like 1% of the GDP. Market transformations began in rural areas with the introduction of the so-called agrarian reform, which was based on the transition from semi-subsistence planned management to a market economy, to commodity money relations. Agricultural communes are being liquidated, replaced by a system of small family businesses family contracts. As a result of the agrarian reform, more than 90% of peasant households are switching to a system of contracts, which later leads to their ruin. So the village, 
becomes the largest supplier of cheap labor for work in Western and Chinese plants and factories. The high intensity of labor, the merciless exploitation of workers, and the lack of labor protection in enterprises allowed China, Chinese businessmen to earn their first millions and Western capitalists to move their enterprises to China, thereby increasing their incomes. Again, low cost of labor, high intensity of labor, and, and so on. Things that you might not be able to get away with uh, so easily in the U.S. or other similar countries. In 1994, the Chinese authorities passed a law on corporations, according to which most state-owned enterprises must be privatized. Quote, in 2001, about a fifth of all large-scale industrial companies were privately owned. There were more than 6 million individual and more than 1 million private institutions. Already, by 2003, there were about 30 million individual farms, up from 6 million. In 2009, the 500 largest private enterprises in China produced a total value of 4.74 trillion yuan, which is 15% more than in 2008 and exceeds the average growth rate of public organizations. So in other words, the private sector growing much faster than the um, public sector there, which is getting sidelined. By the end of 2013, the private sector of the economy accounted for over 60% of the country's GDP. The number of registered private enterprises in the country amounted to more than 12 million, and the number of individual farms, more than 44 million. Quote, clearly the public sector is currently smaller than the private sector, with the exception of large processing plants that have established themselves in the global market and have established links with foreign companies and suppliers of raw materials, according to The Wall magazine. Today, we see not only the predominance of the private sector over the state sector in China, but also the complete absence of a socialist structure in the economy, as well as workers' control in enterprises. We'll say it is still present somewhere, but um, not necessarily in all these uh, private enterprises in particular. Moreover, the trend towards the abolition of public property intensified with the deepening of market reforms and the further development of capitalism, which is more of a counter-revolution than it is the construction of socialism. Just a few more screens here. Market reforms have changed not only the basis, but also this. Oh, the, not only the base, but also the superstructure. Sometimes auto translate doesn't always pick up Marxist terms per se. So market reforms have changed not only the base, but also the superstructure. Thus, the members of the Chinese Communist Party or Communist Party of China uh, are the owners of both medium and large enterprises. According to 2015 data, they, together with representatives of the stratum of professional and technical specialists, accounted for 14% of the entire composition of the Communist Party of China. For example, in 2004, billionaire Liang Wangun, the founder and chairman of the board of directors of the Sani Engineering Company, joined the uh, Communist Party. There's a picture of him there. Businessmen were allowed to join the party in 2002. Before that, only workers, peasants, and various kinds of hired workers were admitted to the CCP. And they, they keep saying that, CPC, but not the owners of industries. So previously, only workers, peasants, and various kinds of hired workers were admitted to the party, not owners. Then that changed in 2002. Today, more than 100 uh, dollar billionaires, that's confusing, <laughs> Uh, maybe a hyphen there, 100 dollar billionaires, sit in the National People's Congress of China. The combined wealth of the 200 richest deputies is estimated at about 300 billion, which is comparable to Belgium's GDP. According to the Huron Business Magazine, the Chinese analog of Forbes, 
Today, there are 620 dollar billionaires in China, and there are 1,893 people on the list of rich people whose fortune exceeds 300 billion. They represent different industries from energy to internet services. According to the publication, 9 out of 10 rich people are definitely connected with the Communist Party. Note that in Soviet Russia, the so-called NEPMEN, small private owners who, you know, their, their activities were allowed under the NEP, were severely restricted in their rights. They were not, uh, they were not only forbidden to join the Communist Party, they were also deprived of voting rights. So that was the price of being a small capitalist while that was allowed. We see that in modern China, not only is the building of socialism not carried out, but the imperialist appetite of the ruling class, the big bourgeoisie, is being strengthened. If we compare these processes with what is happening in the USSR, then we see that the Chinese economy is more reminiscent of the late Soviet perestroika, that would be the uh, you know, capitalist restoration in the 80s, than, than it is of the NEP, which was in the way beginning, just to get things kind of stabilized the way that the communists needed them to. Considering the growth of revisionist and opportunist tendencies in the left environment, often nurtured or even funded by the bourgeoisie itself, we consider it one of the most important tasks of communists today to expose the theory of socialism with, with Chinese characteristics as one of the types of opportunism. That's the end of that article from Rote Front, Russian Labor Front. And, um, yeah, let's go into chat before we wrap up for today. Our last segment here. Oh, yeah. Um, wanted to look something up there. Never mind, we'll do it later. All right, what do we have in the chat? Yeah, on that thing before about the AI in the current system in capitalism, there are algorithms to fix rent. Yeah, we... Um, Covered that in a previous stream. Uh, algorithms to keep competitive odds in gambling apps. Automated creation of addictive algorithms, which keeps people sad and sedentary and keeps us buying things. I'm hoping for some AI to develop consciousness so they at least have an option on whether or not to serve the capitalists. Well, I don't know about that, but, you know, is it possible to uh, develop AI um, to fight them? You know, anyway. All right, some questions about Turkish communists that I can't answer right now, but I'll look at your article, John. China has uh, neoliberal political parties that run in local or provincial elections, and they have won some of those elections, too. Yeah, my understanding is they're not um, sort of allowed to compete in the national politics, but yeah, exactly what is the point of allowing that even at the lower level? That reminds me, uh, March 18, also the day of the answer, uh, peace rally, is the 81st anniversary of the nationalization of the petroleum industry in Mexico. There you go. Uh, yeah, they allow other parties, usually at more local levels, but they can be in the People's Congress. It's not 100% CPC. I remember reading that if you wanted to attend the People's Friendship University in the Soviet Union from any country, you would be able to attend it for, uh, with all, all tuition and other expenses paid. I think that was earlier in the USSR's history, but it did do that for a while. Have you watched the video that talks about the people's communes? I can send you the link. If not, I went over it on stream. I'm not sure. Uh, send over the link or um, take a look at it. My aunt's brother-in-law went away to the USSR for college and to avoid serving in the military in its last days of existence. 
Good plan. He lives in Russia to this day. I haven't seen him for like 14 years. I mean, it's unfortunate that the USSR ceased to exist. Also, Deng Xiaoping took away universal health care that they had under Mao. I mean, it's pretty classical neoliberalism on the same time that it started happening in the U.S. and, you know, so on. So we were talking about the sort of China-U.S. ties in the last stream. I mean, that, that in particular is pretty conspicuously close timing. Also, uh, Deng's foreign policies were pretty imperialist. China had a couple of big L's when it came to foreign policy, especially after the Sino-Soviet split. Yeah, I would encourage people to um, go back to the last stream, 87, or the clip I'll be posting of it, the international role of China. That article talks about how the Sino-Soviet split was, um, I mean, one perspective on it that was put forward is that they did correctly um, criticize the opportunism under Khrushchev, but they were sort of using that as a cover um, to sort of advance other interests. Like it was, it was correct, but it was also being used as a shield um, for some other, you know, uh, policy moves. I was surprised that Yugoslavia had good relationships with China even during Mao, since Tito stabbed them in the back by voting in the UN for the embargo when they helped the DPRK push the Americans back, like funding the Mujahideen. Yeah, we were, we were talking about, about a lot of this yesterday. The Mujahideen, the uh, Chinese assistance with um, the reactionaries in Afghanistan, the border war with Vietnam. These were not high points in um, proletarian internationalist solidarity, for sure. In fact, they were active assistance of um, some reactionary things. So this got brought up yesterday, too. The person who beat up Yanis Varoufakis in a restaurant recently, who was it and why did they do it? I mean, yeah, I haven't seen anything else about that. Oh, they may have been far-right people. All right. Anyway, someone has a link. Send it. Let's see. Dung was the proof you can be both rebellious and reactionary. You know, and Deng Xiaoping was around for like a long time prior to that. It's not like he just emerged in the 70s either. We'll be covering more of that history in a later module on the channel. We probably won't get to it for some time, though. Yeah, so I, I hate this. Um, what do you say to those who say it's inappropriate for Western Marxists to criticize China? What ground do they stand on, they might say? Um... And yeah, I think it matters how China is being critiqued. We don't want to add to just Cold War rhetoric of inner uh, capitalist competition over resources. You know, the U.S. is trying to start a Cold War with China. We don't support that. We support internationalism and peace, better conditions for waging class struggle. Um, but at the same time, as Marxists, you know, we don't want to follow wrong models. So we want to criticize... Um, things that claim to be Marxist, but, you know, somebody has like a grounded criticism of why it's an example of revisionism or opportunism, you, you do have to say that. Um, you know, it's expected that communists are going to be critical of things like that. It's pretty fundamental to what, uh, you know, the analysis techniques of Marxism is all about. Um, there's a lot of people who have really just propaganda level understanding of 
you know, what's going on with the U.S., Russia, and China. Uh, people who start telling you things like that, you know, uh, well, you're just a U.S. leftist, what do you know? That's not really good. I mean, it's true on the one hand that it can be hard to get accurate information about what's happening in China sometimes. So fair, although China could maybe help that somewhat by, um, you know, if, if that's a standing problem in establishing international solidarity, then please, you know, help us out there. A lot of people speak English. It's worth um, publishing things in English. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Um, but also, well, a lot of times that sort of attack or counterattack or defense is launched by just people trying to dismiss any criticism out of hand of like, well, what do you know? You're not Chinese. Okay, but you know, Marxism is a system of analyzing historical development and anyone should be able to do that analysis. Saying that, you know, you lack the proper context because you're not specifically Chinese. Well, I mean, then give us the context so that we can know and just don't have to take this on faith. Taking things on faith is not really something that Marxism is about. All right. We are just about caught up with the chat today, and I've done all the streaming that I set out to do today. So we have caught up with some of those readings and current events. Again, we'll catch up with the long COVID stuff again uh, next time, you're welcome for the answer. I, I agree that that's a really frustrating thing. I wound up just blocking a lot of those people because they have nothing to offer but arguments. And again, that sort of propaganda level understanding. Um, yeah, Hoja also had a lot of things to say about China 40 years ago. We'll definitely be covering that as well. All right. Thanks to everybody who showed up for this stream. I appreciate it, especially Shakespeare for the modding. Go check out Shakespeare's channel. Shakespeare is also a streamer. Um, and yeah, everybody listening on YouTube, we'll see you next time.